Good morning. It is so good to have each of you worshiping with us here in the sanctuary or joining us in the streaming. Welcome. Please stand and join me in the call to worship, which is printed in your bulletin. In you, Lord our God, we put our trust. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Guard our lives and rescue us. Do not let us be put to shame, for we take refuge in you. Eternal God, in whom we live and move and have our being, we praise you for your merciful keeping and gracious care, for all of the gifts of your love that you show us daily. Open our eyes so that we may see your gracious hand at work in our lives. Open our ears so that we may hear your whispers of love to us. Soften our hearts that we may receive your truth Reveal yourself to us here today, so we may go forth in your truth, your love, and your strength. This we pray in your name. Amen.
a great word for us this morning of our strong deliverer to whom we, for whom we uh, follow and to whom we worship. We're so glad that you're here this morning. Before you're seated, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship as well. You may be seated, and I want to uh, just invite you uh, that we have some uh, sheets in the uh, pew rack, a pad of uh, information. Uh, if you want to uh, contact us about something, you can fill that out. If you're a guest today, we especially welcome you and encourage you to fill that out. You can drop in the offering plate a little later. If you're not ready, just leave it in the pew. We'll collect it afterwards. Also, uh, it's an opportunity to find out more information about participating in a variety of ministries here in the church, and you can see there's uh, quite a list of the various things that we are doing. Uh, tonight at 5 o'clock, all of you are invited to the uh, 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 beginning of the school year picnic, and the weather looks good, so we'll be out on the grass back here. You see some information in the bulletin about things you can bring. We're going to be hosting uh, probably a couple hundred or more college students who are here on campus uh, for athletics or student life, uh, other things. And so we need to bring a little bit of extra food for them. We're not anticipating them bringing food. So if you can help with that, we hope to see you. We're going to play some games and just have a chance to share and visit together. Uh, it be a, a good time to reconnect. And so we hope to see you this afternoon at 5 o'clock. Good morning. I'm Kathy Hilscher. And I'm here today to talk a little bit about this wonderful group of people that went with us um, this summer to Puerto Rico to do a missions trip. We were there from July 21st to July 29th, and we were based out of the Wesleyan Academy um, right outside of San Juan. And we stayed there, slept on the floor there, ate there, we played, we prayed, we worked, we sweat a lot. It was a little bit smelly in the guys' room. Um, It was just a wonderful opportunity for us to get to know each other as a group. It's not a group that necessarily always hangs together. And to grow and to be stretched and to be challenged. Um, We went out from the academy a couple days, and one group went to Vieques, a small island off of Puerto Rico. And they delivered care packages to shut-ins and really got to see some of the devastation that still exists from the hurricane last year. And the other group went to the food bank and packed over 400 packages um, at the food bank. So we worked really hard, and it was really hot. Um, And it was just a great trip. And we are going to talk more about our trip on September 9th during Kaleidoscope. So if you'd like to hear lots of individual stories from the trip, and there are lots of them, um, you can come then and listen. But we just really want to thank you for supporting us through prayer and financially to go on this missions trip. The trip is over, and we're probably mostly unpacked, but I think for lots of us, the journey has really just begun.
Hey, I'm Maya. Um, so as you may know, we had the Retz family with us, and they being the smart ones, um, brought a few care packages that included a couple of necessities like toothbrush, toothpaste, hygiene products, along with a Bible verse, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The idea was that when we saw a homeless person on the sidewalk, we could give it to him or her as we drove by. One day, we stopped at a red light, and we saw a homeless lady who was missing an arm. Immediately, Miss Retz, who was in the front seat, looked at PJ, who was driving, and asked him before, like, she was already getting out of the car, hey, can I get out here real quick? Without even waiting for a response, she ran across the street and gave the lady one of the care packages. As the light turned green, we drove away and saw her go right to the Bible verse and start to read it. As she read, her face lit up and a huge smile came on her face. She looked so happy. I realized that this was the reason why we volunteer and go on missions trips. Not for the money or the fame or just for an excuse to go on a vacation. We do it for the joy. The joy that we bring others when we share what we have. Hi, I'm Steve Tucker. I had the honor of co-leading the trip with Pastor John. Uh, our hope in leading the, the students, uh, we were hoping to contribute to the identity development of our youth through service and experiences they wouldn't have otherwise. We wanted to encourage thankfulness for what we do have and compassion for those in need. Also to deepen our relationships with God, understanding his heart toward all of humanity and toward each of us individually. And I would say that did happen. Um, the trip theme message was from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This speaks of having the same mindset as Christ Jesus in our relationships with one another. Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself. Our individual and group devotions were aimed at seeing Christ's message of humble service and understanding his heart toward us through several of his parables. Uh, the parables included the invited guests from Luke 14, the workers in the vineyard from Matthew 20, the sower of the seeds, Matthew 13, and we ended with the Good Samaritan. And with the, uh, the Good Samaritan in mind, the scriptures say, after he told the parable, Jesus asked the expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise, essentially saying that the law was not for debating, but for doing. The, the Samaritan man saw someone in need of help, demonstrating eyes of service. He had compassion, demonstrating a heart of service. He rolled up his sleeves. He helped. He had hands of service. He went the extra mile, demonstrating feet of service. And he gave financially, having a wallet of service. Pastor John and I took an Uber ride. Uh, that was a really interesting experience. Anybody take an Uber ride before? It was, it was fascinating technology. So we took this Uber ride back to the airport after dropping everybody off, then bringing the vans back to the academy, and then we needed a, a ride back to the airport again. So this uh, public school teacher uh, we caught a ride with. I was in the back seat, and 
Um, I was blessed to be that backseat eavesdropper on John's conversation with this man. They asked each other what they did for a living. When John told him he is a pastor and that he was in Puerto Rico leading a group of Christians offering service to the people there, our driver expressed his experience with matters of faith being pretty much isolated to church time on Sundays. He explained that he had never seen someone actually doing the things outside of church that were preached about in church. He proceeded to express a desire to connect on a deeper level with God. Pastor John was placed there in that moment for a greater purpose than to receive a ride to the airport. We were all placed there for those nine days for a greater purpose than to paint, help at a food bank, and deliver care packages. If interested in more stories uh, about the work that God did, we'll be speaking, as Kathy mentioned, at the Kaleidoscope class on September 9th. But we'd like to, on behalf of all of us, thank you for your support. We have all witnessed the church emulating the Good Samaritan with eye, heart, hand, foot, and wallet, all given to serve God. Thank you. Thank you to Pastor John and all of you who have participated in the trip, and we look forward to hearing more. Our Old Testament scripture reading is Psalm 83. O God, do not remain silent. Do not turn a deaf ear. Do not stand aloof, O God. See how your enemies growl, how your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say. Let us destroy them as a nation, so that Israel's name is remembered no more. With one mind they plot together. They form an alliance against you, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab, and the Hagrites, Biblos, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, with the people of Tyre. Even Assyria has joined them to reinforce Lot's descendants. Do to them as you did to Midian, as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who perished at Endor and became like dung on the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb, Zeb, all their princes like Seba and Salmana, who said, Let us take possession of the pasture lands of God. Make them like tumbleweed, my God, like shaft before the wind, as fire consumes the forest or a flame sets the mountain ablaze. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame, Lord, so that they will seek your name. May they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the Most High over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings, I invite you to stand for the doxology.
Accept these gifts, O God, and may they be used according to your will to redeem, restore, and renew the ministries within your kingdom. Amen. You may be seated. Those of us who promise to follow Jesus uh, engage ourselves in a variety of ways with him. And one of the the parts of uh, following him is coming to him and acknowledging our need. And uh, our need for his grace, forgiveness, his presence, his love. So I invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin as we together express our need. For Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how often we allow our sin and iniquity to cloud our judgment. We deafen our ears to your voice and allow the voice of selfishness, greed, and maliciousness and discontent to guide our minds and influence our ways. As a church, we acknowledge our guilt to you. Father, we thank you that you hear us, that you speak to us, and that you love us. Make our hearts still so that you may call us forth 
with your own voice of love, charity, forgiveness, and grace. Let us hear your voice that calls us beloved, and may we rest in you that we may be your church. Amen. Father, we thank you that we are indeed live in the privilege of being your church and your people. We thank you that you are a God who desires relationship with your people. That is at work in this world and that your love is poured out upon us. Father, as we gather for worship today, we sing our songs of praise to you and and we declare our need for you. And we ask for your grace and help in our lives. Father, some of us come today with a burden about a relationship. We know that it's not where it should be and could be. We ask for your miraculous restoration. Some of us come concerned about uh, work, about a job, our job, and the dynamics of our work. And we pray that you will, you will give us help and strength to do the task that you have placed before us and to find joy in creating and serving and working. Some of us, Father, come today with concerns about the future. There are decisions that lie before us. We pray that on the journey of life that is often a a twisting, winding road, may we have your wisdom and your grace of discernment. Father, some of us come with grief on our hearts and all the ways in which loss and pain invades our lives and our world. And we pray, Father, that you will bring comfort in our grief. For some, it is the burden of physical pain and health issues. We especially pray today for Aaron Kohler, Karen Gardy, for Phil Maine, Dan Gurley, Florence Tuber, Rosalind Danner, Isabella Doherty, Gus and Louise Princell. Nancy Cole, Peter Lingenfelter, Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, Mike Raybuck, Beverett, Emily Cricklar, and for others who may be on our minds and our hearts today, may your healing grace be evident. Father, we thank you for the ministries of this church, and as we saw and listened to this group standing before us who spent uh, more than a week in Puerto Rico serving and helping and caring. We thank you for that, for the privilege of being able to participate in these kinds of ministries and outreaches. Father, we pray that you will, you will bless not only this church and what we're doing, but other churches as well. And today we pray for the, the Dalton United Methodist Church and Pastor Lauren Turner. Pour out your spirit on that gathering of believers as they worship you and serve you. We pray, Father, that you would help us as we serve and think about not only ourselves, but the wider community that we are connected to. We pray, Father, that you will help us through our food pantry and benevolent fund to, to be generous in what we distribute 
as you have blessed us with such amazing generosity. And we pray that what we do will bear witness to who you are, to your love and grace in this world and in our lives. We think of the wider, bigger world, our nation beyond, people who are still recovering from disasters and tragedies, and people whose lives are, are interwoven into violence and war, refugees who are simply looking for a secure, safe place to put down roots and live. We pray, Father, that you will bring peace to our nation and our world, that you will bring your presence to bear in a world that desperately needs you. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for your loving grace that, that acts in mercy when your people pray. We offer our prayers in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
The New Testament scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. Following the tradition of the church, I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord.
Sometimes the Bible concerns us. There are are passages of Scripture that confuse us, that frustrate us, sometimes irritate us a little bit. There are passages of Scripture that we probably think to ourselves, why is that there? Why did that need to be there? I wish it weren't there. And even when we ask those questions, we're not, we're not questioning the authority of Scripture. That's the Word of God. We just have a level of confusion about some of the passages of Scripture, and particularly some of the Old Testament passages of Scripture. We, we probably can resonate with a little boy who, having been told some of the Old Testament stories that are difficult to grasp and some of the teachings of the Old Testament, tried to explain it by saying, well, that was before God was a Christian. And sometimes we feel that way, right? I mean, what's going on here? And, and it leads, it has led scholars through the years to wonder, to declare sometimes, that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. They have to be completely separate people because they're going in completely different directions. It's the confusion of some of the things in Scripture. And I wonder if maybe Psalm 83 might be one of those passages of Scripture that we scratch our heads about. This is a passage in which Israel's prayer is basically, God, take out our enemies. We don't know the context of this psalm. It's Psalm of Asaph, who was the worship leader of David. It could have been written during David's time. It could have been written by his descendants after that. There is no, there's no cultural context, a historical context to it. But it's a moment in which Israel is feeling vulnerable. They are surrounded by enemies. Verses uh, 5 through 8 talk about the variety of people, peoples, nations that are surrounding them. They've made a treaty and they're after Israel. Some of them are descendants, relatives of Israel. They go back to Abraham and Lot. Others are just warring nations around them. But all of them have joined forces and their target is the little nation of Israel. And Israel is feeling the stress and the pressure and, 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 the, and the threat of these enemies, and they cry out to God, God, not just save us, but get rid of them. And when we hear that, it makes us a little bit nervous. You know, it's one of, it, 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 it's one of those passages where we are trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. What we tend to do is equate these kinds of passages with something personal, I mean, that's always our, our first response when we read the scriptures. We're thinking to ourselves, what does that mean to me? What is that, how does that speak into my life? And, and while that is, that is certainly appropriate often, this is a passage of scripture that is really not speaking about the personal nature of opposition. It's not really speaking to that person hurt me. That circumstance is against me. I'm having a struggle in life. It's not so much personal as it is corporate. This is about the nation of Israel, God's people, feeling threatened. And crying out to God, don't let your people be eliminated. It really shouldn't surprise us that God's people are threatened and persecuted, that we see it throughout all of Scripture, we see it throughout the history of the church and God's people. 
Because what's really happening here is that the evil one has gathered around him people who, who want to follow him and they are attacking God and God's people. And it is the most natural thing to, in living in this world in which evil has a relatively high amount of power that the evil one who hates God and everything associated with God does everything in his power to destroy the things and the people that are connected to God. It shouldn't be surprising that that is the, that is the desire of, of a being that hates God. And we see evil at work in the world over and over again. And Jesus talks about this to his disciples. In Matthew 24, he says, you're going to be arrested, persecuted, killed. You're going to be hated all over the world. Why? Because you're my followers. Because you're connected to me. And the evil one hates me. He's going to hate you. And it says, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. And since they persecuted me naturally, they're going to persecute you. It is the evil one at work in the world attempting to eliminate from the world God's people. And we have seen it over and over and over again throughout history. I think one of the things that is difficult for us, even knowing that and reading a passage like this, is that we tend to read it through 21st century Western eyes. We read this passage as people who have pretty high levels of freedom from threats. I don't know that any of us, I'd be surprised if any of us woke up this morning and thought, I wonder if the representative of our local government are going to be here looking to arrest people coming to church this morning. I doubt if any of us thought of when we decided to come to church, we're wondering, are neighbors going to gather around the building and threaten us? We don't live with that. But it also makes me wonder how Christians in places like North Korea and Somalia and in Nigeria and in other places of the world where the threat is real and constant. And how they see this differently. For them, it's survival. Now, we have different threats that come against us here in this country. They may not be physical, but they come in other ways. Because the evil one is doing everything possible to try and eliminate and destroy the church. And this is a prayer of God to not let that happen. I do think it's interesting that the psalmist is not trying to hide his feelings. You know, sometimes we do that when we pray, right? I mean, we have these thoughts, we have these feelings inside of us, but they don't seem like we ought to say them out loud. That we ought to address them to God. It might make us look bad. God may say, really? I thought you were my follower. Why are you thinking, saying those kinds of things about other people? There's an honesty here in this prayer that I think is good. I mean, if we are thinking it, we might as well say it to God and get it out in the open. And he can help us deal with it. Because the alternative is to keep pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down until an explosion takes place. And usually in negative ways and in destructive ways. 
And it shouldn't surprise us that when we're praying about the enemies of God and his people, that those prayers would be emotionally charged. It shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we are talking about prayers to God to say, defeat evil in this world. There ought to be emotion to that. We ought to feel emotion about praying against the evil, the, the work of the evil one in the world. Because the alternative to that is to sit back and say, well, it doesn't really matter to me. If it doesn't affect me personally, why would I care? I don't care. Let the evil one do what he wants. doesn't matter to me. God's people care. God's people care about, about defeating evil in this world, whether it directly affects us or not. That's why we pray for the persecuted church. That's why we're interested in what's happening with the church around the world. Because we do care. And we're praying for God to to not allow evil to overcome his church. What we're really praying is for God to maintain his witness in this world. You will notice that in the last couple of verses, you get a, a little glimmer of hope from the psalmist. And he says in verse 16, disgrace them until they submit to your name. In verse 18, they will learn that you alone are called the Lord, that you alone are the most high, supreme over all the earth. Lord, let us be a witness to them and to your power and to your greatness and to who you are, that they might see you and seek you and submit to you. In the ancient context, when nations battled one another, their mindset was not who has the biggest army and who has the strongest army, but whose God is the strongest. And in their mind, the battles are are won on earth because of the way the battles are won in the heavens. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, let these nations know that you are God. Let them know that no matter what it looks like, no matter how big their armies are, you're still greater. It's fascinating to me that when the psalmist says in verses 9 to 12, talks about do what you did in the days of Midian and goes through these, some of these names that are not real familiar to us. He's referencing the two stories in, in the book of Judges, the story of Deborah and the story of Gideon. What intrigues me about that is that it's hard to find two less likely heroes in the history of God's people than Deborah and Gideon. I've been fascinated for a long time that in the middle of this, of this hyper-patriarchal culture, you have a story of two women who are leaders in Israel and a story in which the heroes in the, are women and the cowards are the men. I think it paints an interesting picture about God's kingdom. And Gideon, Gideon is so frightened of the Midianites, he has so little courage that when God appears to him, when the angel comes to him, he finds him in a wine press threshing wheat because he's afraid that if the Midianites see him, they'll steal his wheat. And God says to him, O mighty warrior, And Gideon had to be looking around saying, you're talking to me? 
I mean, these are the two most unlikely heroes in Israel's history. And yet, in this psalm, the psalmist says, do what you did and do now what you did then. Because what you did then was a huge miracle. And you can work even through the weakness of your people. Because of who you are. And the nations are going to look at us and say, they are the weakest group of people I've ever seen. And do they keep winning battles? Maybe it has something to do with their God. It is a prayer of faith that God who has done it in the past will do it again. It's, when you get to the New Testament, it is the message of revelation. When we get tied up in revelation about the prophecies and the numbers and trying to figure out all these things. But ultimately, the prophecy, the, the vision of revelation is to a persecuted church that the, the risen Christ wins. And we can bank on it. And when you know that, there is a level of confidence, not in ourselves, but in God that evil will be defeated. It's what Jesus says to his disciples, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Not because of who the church is, but because of who God is. And this psalm is saying, God, don't let your witness disappear from this earth. Because if your witness disappears, how will anyone ever know who you are? How will anyone ever experience life with you and relationship with you if evil defeats your people? And we might say, well, even if that were to happen, God God could do it other ways. God doesn't need his people. God doesn't need the church to accomplish his purposes. That may be true, but that isn't how God designed it. From the very beginning, God has designed his witness to be his people. He says to to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. You and your descendants are going to be my people, my witnesses. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? And that's why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. I mean, he's just reiterating what Jesus says to the disciples. The last words he speaks to them, you are my witnesses. And the message of the kingdom rises and falls with the church. And in spite of how fallible and often unreliable the church is, it's Christ's church. And we are his witnesses. And our confidence and our prayers are rooted in the fact that God will never let his witness disappear from the earth. And when we know that confidence, when we begin to live in that confidence, we begin to understand the shift in how God works in the world. In the Old Testament, God is bringing his people to Jesus. He is preparing them for Jesus. 
It's hard for them to grasp it. And as they pray this prayer and sing this psalm, they are praying and singing from the perspective of what they know about God and what they know about the world and how God does things. But it's all leading to Jesus. And ultimately, God comes in Christ and says, this is how evil is defeated. By a little baby in a manger. And that baby dying on a cross. And the man on the cross rising from the dead. And the one who is risen ascending to heaven and coming back once again in glory. And when we begin to grasp that truth, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 make sense. I've been asking myself the question, is it possible that this prayer of Psalm 83 might actually be an act of love? It doesn't seem like it when you read it. But isn't it loving to ask God to not let his witness disappear from the face of the earth? Isn't it a loving, a prayer rooted in love to say, God, defeat evil Remove evil, keep evil away from your people so that your people can be the purest witnesses possible in a world that desperately needs him. Crush the evil ones who are, who are destroying innocent lives and let your people bear witness to who you are in Christ Jesus. And yes, we can pray for God to, to work powerfully in this world from a spirit of hatred and vindictiveness. And sometimes I worry that we fall into that trap. But the prayer of Jesus is, Father, make us people who so love that we defeat evil. And we are a presence of your presence in the midst of a world wrestling with evil, just like Jesus. Maybe one of the great tests of our faith is to pray against evil without becoming evil ourselves. Maybe a great test of our faith is praying against persecution and, and not becoming persecutors ourselves. Praying for a witness that not only has the mind of Christ, but the behavior and the actions and the spirit and the presence of Christ. Because ultimately, God's answer to Asaph's prayer is not a sword. It's a cross. It's a cross. And the question confronting us is, do we believe, do we believe enough in the way of Christ to be witnesses in the midst of a world absorbed with evil, to be witnesses for Christ? As we pray for the church to continue to invade and change and be the presence of Christ 
amidst the evil and the evil one in this world. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace to us. Even when we struggle to understand some things in your word, we pray that you will open our minds and our hearts. Father, thank you for the privilege of bearing witness to you, being your people, your presence, through the grace of Jesus. We ask for courage. We ask for faith. And we ask for a loving spirit. Through Jesus Christ. Amen.
Amen. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.